This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, a Black educator who put Africa at the center of his teaching is still impacting the profession 13 years after his death. And some of the biggest fortunes in the world have been derived from poisoning generations of people and polluting the air, water, and soil. We'll examine the lethal history of arsenic. But first, Joy James teaches political theory, feminist theory, and critical race theory at Williams College. We spoke with Professor James about her upcoming book on what she calls Captive Caretakers of the Black Community and her recent article, Airbrushing Revolution for the Sake of Abolition. It's actually a response to a piece that a colleague in New Orleans sent me from a group of Maoists. I think they're called the Black Revolutionary Guard. So they wrote something that ended up on Medium that was talking about Professor Angela Davis. And there were a number of things that they talked about which were historically incorrect and in terms of political analysis, I would say underdeveloped. So in a way, they were defending Davis as an important ally, but then had a lot of confusions about the Panther Party. And of course, I was not ever a member of the Panther Party. I'm not a historian. I can just say that decades ago, I met Harlem people, people in the branch, and through them, I went to Cuba. I got to with Asada Shakur and other people, and just sort of over the years learned more about what gets airbrushed out of academic narratives. So I was responding to this piece from radical activists who understood themselves to be under surveillance, who identified an ally, at the same time called them a rightist. And I sort of went through a number of points, one in terms of airbrushing, academics that I know of, some of their works, at times organize our work for our editors, for publishers, and for potential readers, which would be people who go to university, academics who, you know, we all work in the same business or industry. So there's a filter that skews it towards the liberal reader and towards people who would belong to the bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeoisie. And so it almost becomes a consumer item, you know, a commodity, even though you're supposed to be writing and you are writing about black militancy or black radicalism or black revolutionary struggle for some sources or some writers that can be skewed into an airbrush narrative. So when it came to Davis, I just mentioned that in 97, 98, and I had known them pre-academia because I used to organize with different groups in New York City, including one that was a women's organization that was aligned with the CPUSA. I was made an offer to join the party. I declined and then they kind of kicked me to the curb. Like I was not useful. But while I was useful, I met Davis in New York, in Nairobi, in Moscow, in Montgomery, Alabama. At different points, we would just intersect organizing around human rights. So knowing Davis pre-academy, pre-careerism was one reality. Knowing Davis as an academic, when I became one myself, that was a separate reality. 
So in 97, 98, Davis asked me to organize a prototype for critical resistance, which was going to deal with the prison industrial complex. And even though the main conference would happen at UC Berkeley that September 1998, I was asked to do one in March 98, and it would be named after one of her UCLA lectures. It would be titled Unfinished Liberation. So I talked about how the academics who formed the faculty senate, even if it wasn't called a senate, but it was the governing body, were willing to pay for this type of endeavor, but they had their own ask, right? So even though Geronimo Pratt or Elmer Pratt had been released about the same time after 27 years of wrongful incarceration, you know, because basically it was framed by the FBI and the LAPD under COINTELPRO, and his trial was happening at the same time that Angela Davis's trial was taking place. But her trial became like a media spectacle, so the media didn't do investigative reporting just to get the facts around what was going on with Pratt being framed. So he was available to speak, but the academics did not want him for a number of reasons. One, he was not an academic. Two, he was not a celebrity. And three, even though they knew he was innocent, he's still a black man who had these charges and who was linked to a kind of radical or revolutionary resistance to state violence. So I recognized him because he was a Vietnam vet. And, you know, personally, it didn't bother me what he was linked to. My father was an officer in Vietnam. I grew up on military bases. So this whole notion of struggle in a militaristic fashion was just, I was born into it. And so what phased the academics didn't bother me, but they kind of nixed it. And I couldn't reach out to him, connect. So he did not become another keynote speaker. So Davis was the only keynote speaker. I did invite four people who were in the party. So all four names are mentioned in this article, brief article, Airbrushing Revolution. Holder, Sophia Bukhari, Gabe Torres, and Lilu Lee, who did the documentary All Power to the People, the Black Panther Party, and beyond. So while organizing is free labor, right? I'm like assistant prof, lowest level, not tenured. I have multiracial undergrad students who are like ditching their classes because they're just committed to this, like, yeah, we're going to take on the prison industrial complex. I get a late night call where Davis is relaying a message from Elaine Brown that she'll sue me if I air Lee Lee's documentary. Because there's a small clip, you know, it's almost two hours, but there's a small piece where I believe it's a former member of the party, African-American man, makes reference to J. Richard Kennedy, who at one point had a personal relationship with Brown. We can say was unwittingly, you know, she had no knowledge at the time, we can say, about what he did for a living, which basically he worked for the FBI and the CIA, and he had spied on the civil rights movement for years. So I declined the request to ban the documentary and is basically disinvite Lee Lee. Like it didn't make sense. We were academics, we follow scholarship, and I wasn't going to censor him. And the documentary wasn't full of falsehoods. It was just trying to talk about COINTELPRO and repression, which would be important for people to know. So two days later, I get the FedEx and, you know, I walk it to the provost's offices and, you know, the Republican white guys who I'm sure the administrators have a good laugh and then I leave. But it's at the keynote. 2,000 people come, the most expensive, largest conference at the time. 
at CU Boulder, University of Colorado Boulder, which is the flagship. The documentary is screened. It's well-received. At the keynote, the closing day, there's a statement made about people who blame Black women for sleeping with the slave master and then revealing or betraying the slave rebellion. And for me, that was striking, obviously, if I remember it 22 years later, because it was a disciplinary move. And so I talk in the article how I understand that disciplinary move. Like at the time that Davis penned the article that the Black Scholar published in 71, I believe, the role of the Black woman in a community of slaves, it was dedicated to George Jackson, whom she considered him to be her partner, right? And he had been killed in San Quentin. It was dedicated to him. And part of the narrative is that Black women could struggle side by side with Black men against an oppressor in order to further our freedoms. But by the 90s, and I'm not a specialist in cultural studies, but I would say by the 90s, the 1990s, whatever Black studies have been as an insurgent intellectualism in the 1960s, the late 1960s, early 1970s, by the 1990s, cultural studies was really strong. And it really anchored the academy in terms of we want to introduce you to Blackness or feminism and so on and so forth. So when that statement is made from the stage, it's no longer we're fighting alongside of Black men in a revolutionary struggle. And it doesn't even have to be gendered. We're no longer fighting a revolutionary struggle. It's now a statement about the leadership of Black women under Black feminism. And so the focus then becomes on Daniel Moynihan's construct of, you know, the Black matriarchy and how you flip that into Black feminist leadership. And so this is sort of what I open with when I'm talking to the Black revolutionary guerrillas, the Maoists, it's like, okay, wait, you have to understand, like, the historical narrative is not stable because it can be sculpted for ideological purposes and it can still be progressive. It's just not necessarily going to be radical or revolutionary. And the leadership can skew towards elites, even without intention. So there are other aspects of this that we walk through. I talk about Van Jones, his like crafting this sort of prison police reform thing with Jared Kushner on behalf of Trump, which has no legs to stand on, but also that progressive academics airbrushed policy for Obama that wasn't transformational, but they were marketing it as such. So then it raises the question of pragmatic compromises that are made. Another couple points, you know, there's a political economy of social justice. I mean, there's a way in which you see the corporations throwing millions of dollars, which for a billion, multi-billion dollar corporation, that's not real money. But anyway, so Jeff Bezos or, you know, Amazon, whoever, like, let's give to the NAACP and so forth. I'm not saying don't give. I'm just saying that's PR and that's not power. It's just a tax deduction. But also in the political economy of social justice, I argue that elite academics, and I teach at an Ivy League college, so technically, I'm one of the people I'm talking about, even though I'm, I'm not in this arena. But elite academics can gain personal wealth and manage portfolios from donors for movement change, et cetera, et cetera, with very little risk of surveillance or repression. 
whereas the street activists are at high risk of surveillance and repression, and they have no wealth. And that there's no way that we're balancing this scale. So we sort of defer to what I would say is the hegemony. And more points are made, but the last point, which I think is the most crucial, because I'm talking about the past, and I'm just saying certain documentaries, narratives, textbooks get amplified and others get suppressed. But the last section I write, um, war is not a metaphor. And I talk about slavery as war, and part of that comes from Vincent Brown's book on the Jamaican rebellions in the 18th century, right? And his argument that when the abolitionists in the 18th century tried to talk to the British, because most of their money was coming out of Jamaica, they were like, what's with the branding people cutting out their tags? Stop. And the pushback, you know, was a military pushback. It's like, no, these people are not just workers. They're actually warriors. And this is a war. We have to be brutal against them or they will rebel. And so... Following that argument, according to Brown, who's a historian at Harvard, he says the abolitionists countered with the meek persona of the shackled black person on one knee or both knees with their hands clasped and pointing to the heaven and usually tears coming down your face. Like they had to do a 180 alternative that this is just the zone. Black is just a zone of constant suffering. And so that the ethical white person, the moral abolitionist, would help this hapless creature. And so the whole notion of militancy had to be erased in order to establish what I'm calling an algorithm of anti-racism that can keep donors and liberals satisfied that they're good people who are helping because these are people who really can't resist the amount of terror that's waged against them. And I totally agree, we need coalitions to deal with being terrorized, and it's not just us. It's not a caricature because we are suffering. We're grief-stricken and we mourn all the time, right? We're traumatized, basically, at least the people I know are. But we also rebel. And it's sort of the erasure of that rebellion is a precondition for broadening the coalition. So when I end with... War is not a metaphor. I'm basically writing slavery was war. The convict prison lease system was war. Sharecropping, where if you left the land, they'd hunt you down and bring you back, torture you, hang you as a spectacle. That was war. And my mother was a sharecropper in Mississippi, so she saw some stuff. So I understand how that can go through the generations. Sharecropping is war. COINTELPRO was war. Nixon, and this I got from you, Glenn, watching one of your talks, you talked about the insurrectionist wars as COINTELPRO, right? That Nixon was like, we're going to do a war on drugs and we're going to label the anti-war protesters, white college university protesters as pothead hippies, and then black radicals will be junkies and we're going to sell this as a law and order rather than a war against dissidents who were essentially human rights activists. And then the last war I gesture to is mass incarceration, where you don't know if the suicide is actually a suicide and not a murder by a prison guard, and if dying from natural causes is not just death from medical neglect. So the whole point of 
stop airbrushing revolution is so we can have alliances between abolitionists and revolutionaries, and I know those terms get defined in different ways, in order to confront war. Yes, and sometimes the folks who style themselves as revolutionaries or change agents contribute to the airbrushing themselves. But Mm -hmm. of course, it is true that the people with money are more inclined to give that money to folks who are singing a woe is me song rather than shouting power to the people, death to the fascist pigs. Yeah, if you shout death to the fascist pig, your revenue stream will dry up, Glenn. I agree with you on that one. And, you know, the power to the people. See, this is a thing where just haven't been in this industry for decades. I'm not sure we there's a consensus among us. And, I'm you know, obviously I can't speak for any individual collective. I'm not sure, though, that in terms of progressives or even black academics, We want power to the people. I mean, it seems just the nature of certain professions, power is not equally distributed. You end up with this vanguard, also known as a professor sometimes, or your dean, that is there to, quote, guide you and steer you so that you can progress. And I think it was Barr a number of years ago pointed out like this statement that Obama was part of the black radical tradition, which, you know, actually comes out of an interview with Julian Bond in 2014. It seems to me on some level, we've been sold this idea that black success is black power. And then black success is supposed to unfold under capitalism, which is not really how it works, except for an elite. And I'm echoing your thoughts and the thoughts of many people, but I think there's one issue where we're vulnerable, not to make a pun out of it, which is our trauma. And so like when you said the woe is me is so keenly felt, like through all our generations, the last time I looked, I think the suicide rate among Black children was up 93%. I'm hoping that I got that number wrong or I misread it, but that's incredibly high. And it makes sense that people would market our trauma in order to mobilize stuff and they would shy away from our capacity to rebel. I just don't know how to reconfigure that, not to say that I could do that by myself, but I'm still learning. That's the best way to put it. I'm trying to figure out what to do. Well, what folks who shout power to the people, death to the fascist pigs, want you to do is get first righteously angry about those damnable statistics and that deadly history that we've undergone. But righteous anger doesn't do much other than at least momentarily activate people, but it doesn't tell you what to do. Hmm. Yeah. And so I've been listening, right? Not so much the academics. Like, as I said, I mean, I'm listening, you know, you can go online and find people's talks everywhere, right? And so the people who have organic leaks to the communities, number of different organizations. And for this closure, you know, because I went to seminary, I'm also listening to Black pastors. This whole discussion of spirituality And I guess that takes me to the captive maternal. 
I mean, I, I reached a moment. So in the 90s when I said it was cultural studies and stuff. So I had a number of books come out, Transcending the Talent to Tenth, photos of Charlie Mitchell, Angela in the book. It was recovery, sort of critique of where is Black female leadership? So Charlene Mitchell, who had introduced Angela, recruited Angela to the Che Lumumba Club, which was the all-Black club that the Communist Party put together, you know, at the height of Black militancy to stay more relevant. She's the one who told me to go to the Schomburg Library in Harlem and to research Du Bois and to research specifically the notion of the talented tenth, like how he originally embraced it and then he had to repudiate it, especially when he got caught up in McCarthyism. And so I got to see more closely when I started to read his memoirs or biographies, and I was reading Ida B. Wells at the same time, I got to see how the NAACP and its founding isolated Ida B. Wells. And in part because one of their white funders, Mary White Ovington, wanted Wells sidelined because she was a militant. And like you said, you know, what is to be done? She was very proactive on what is to be done. I mean, after the father of her two-year-old goddaughter, his name was Thomas Moss, was lynched for having like a business meeting in the People's Grocery Store in Memphis, Tennessee, and a bunch of white men in plain clothes with guns were coming up the alley in the dark. And so the black men inside like shot into the alley and, you know, identify yourself or we'll just assume this is a lynching. And then when they realized that those people were sheriff's deputies, then they did the quote right thing as citizens is they went to the courthouse or the police precinct and turned themselves in and said, we didn't know. We understand the white grocer saw us as their competitors, but we didn't know you guys were going to come in the alley, whatever. Right. And for their law-abiding behavior, they were lynched. And that's what made Wells an anti-lynching crusader. She mobilized. But then when you have the founding of the NAACP, they can't handle that level of militancy. And it's not just militancy, it's this care that you would love your community, your family so much that once you're murdered, they would turn into a crusader and she literally had a bounty on her head that kept her out of the South for years. So our suffering is welcomed, but our militancy is not. And I see the captive maternal almost on the seesaw balancing the two out. So the captive maternal for me, when I was transitioning away from black feminism, because I saw it as being too bourgeois, it looked like a lot of it, the early stuff was funded by Gloria Steinem, and I had pointed out in airbrushing, you know, that in 1967, Ramparts magazine revealed that she had worked for the CIA for years. I'm capable of reading stuff and just valuing its content if it has value. But, you know, also I like to look at context. So if Steinem is getting money to start Ms. and is recruiting or being recruited to run the Angela Davis fundraising committee and kind of humanize Davis to non-radical whites, I want to see what kind of feminism is evolving. And it looks like a form of bourgeois feminism. Steinem to me is state feminism, just straight up from consistent support, McGovern to the point of betrayal of Shirley Chisholm to support to the Democratic Party, but also had ties with people in the Nixon administration Kissinger, J. Stanley Pottinger, 
as personal friends. So the sitem can stand on a balanced beam, right, or seesaw with whiteness, well connections, wealth, and not suffer other than, you know, it's not a good look. But for black people, for black women, men, trans women, for black people to caretake our communities, when we balance things out because we love our communities and our families, sometimes we reinforce the structure, right? So I can give like the example of, you know, that principal in that elementary school is racist, but you're going to be really nice to that principal unless you think you can fight her or him, you know, and sort of push them to the side so that they don't harm your second grader as a black child. And so there are these battles that we're engaged in that, oh, you're going to join the PTA and help raise money. It's total BS, right? It's negotiated strategy for survival, minimum harm. Your kid's still going to be harmed because you're going to a school that's run by a racist. But a lot of the captive maternal endeavor or function is to provide emotional labor and support while stabilizing the structure that you think is your only option. Professor Joy James' latest book is titled Fulcrum, The Captive Maternal Leverages Democracy. When Dr. Asa Hilliard died in 2007, the former Dean of Education at San Francisco State University and Professor of Urban Education at Georgia State University was mourned by thousands around the world. Hilliard was famed for advocating the Africanizing of African-American education. Darif Jameson is a professor of African-American studies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He recently published an article titled, Asa Hilliard, Conceptualizing and Constructing an African-Centered Pedagogy. Asa Hilliard, his African-Centered Pedagogy is grounded in his being a teacher, a psychologist, and a historian. And the type of psychologist he was was the educational psychologist. So as an African-centered educational psychologist, he looked at the psychological experiences of African descent people, but the pedagogy comes through the lens of African and African diasporic expressions of culture, religion, and history. So what type of content do you have in your curriculum? So if you look at some of the curriculums we have now, they don't even speak about the experiences of people of African descent. We're a footnote in history. Whereas with the African-centered piece, with that pedagogy, you're centering the content in African and African diasporic culture, religion, and history, as well as how you teach the information. So in the information, if to the extent that African people are people who are have certain spiritual expressions, communal people, then you implement that in how you teach the information. So students won't just sit there in their desk and just learn information. You have more interactive that's going on. You may play music. So there's different ways of how you even present the information coming from an African-centered pedagogy that might not be accepted in particular academic circles. 
Yes, you write that Asa Hilliard advocated a reconstruction of African indigenous socialization systems. But I've always wondered about that. Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. you reconstruct African indigenous socialization systems when Africa itself, for so many hundreds of years, its systems, its civilization has been under constant assault by foreign powers and those systems? have been under assault. How do you reconstruct that which in some cases may have been destroyed? Right. So I think part of that comes from a recognition that what you just said on both sides of the Atlantic, right, whether we're talking about on the continent or in the diaspora, we've both been impacted by whether colonization or by enslavement. So I think part of what Asa Hilliard and other psychologists like him argue from this African-centered perspective is that it hasn't been totally destroyed that there are still, like Wade Nova talked about, a deep structure and then a surface structure of culture. So on the surface structure, it may appear and manifest itself differently because of these things you're talking about, the colonization, the enslavement, you know, those fractures. But they're talking about how do we take those fractures and remember some of those main common things that African people did. So part of that is that on the surface structure level, they may be different. But they argue that there's a deep structural level where there are some common things that are still there that we can try to build upon. And I think I love the point that you brought up because part of what happens with that is that sometimes people think that it means this return to, let's say, for lack of a better term, some 15th century Africa, like this quote unquote pre-colonial or indigenous Africa. And that's part of it. But also what they're talking about is how do you take some of these principles? And how do you take some of these concepts that Africans dealt with and, let's say, recover and remember them within their contemporary context? So one of the things that Asa Hilliard talks about is that there was this school of thought within education that Black children, particularly Black men, took this oppositional stance to education. They call it the oppositional framework. And within that, they saw acting, being smart, studying, being in science, technology, engineering, math, they saw that as acting white. And Asa Hilliard said, there's a problem with that. I don't think they see that as acting white. They haven't been told that within their history and within their culture, there have been people who have done that who look just like them. So what he does is tap into, let's say, a concept like uh, Ogun and Arisha from the Yoruba Ifa tradition. He says that Ogun, if Ogun represents iron and steel, and that was used for technology, human beings using tools to advance, themselves, then that means that that same concept can be applied now. What is the contemporary technology? What's the contemporary manifestation of that Ogun principle? So that's a way where you take this concept, right? But then you can comply it in a contemporary form where it's not like you're going back to some past. You're doing what they call like a Sankofa, bringing it to the present and propelling yourself into the future. In his long career, Asa Hilliard had the opportunity to interact with W.E.B. Du Bois, who famously said that the problem of the 20th century is the color line. And Hilliard said that the main difference between then, that is when Du Bois made that statement, and now, is that the line has been drawn in invisible ink. What did he mean by that, a line drawn in invisible ink? Right. So if we look at Du Bois' color line, and he talks about these differences between, like, the darker-skinned peoples of the world, right? But when you think about in the African-American context, this color line being straight-up, hardcore Jim Crow laws, 
like one example that would be like these Jim Crow laws I teach at University of Alabama at Birmingham. And so in Birmingham, you go to the Civil Rights Institute, you see examples of laws where it specifically says, this is where black people can't go. This is where white people can't interact with black people. What he's saying is that those are like visible inks, a visible color line, a sign that says you can't go here. The invisible ink says that I don't have to have a sign up. I embed the segregation. I embed the Jim Crow in the particular laws. I embed it into the system. So, for example, if you look at education now, he would argue that things like how you still have the majority of Black children in inner cities going to majority Black schools. And these majority Black schools are still underfunded. These majority Black schools still have, don't have the resources. But that doesn't come out of some law that says that these Black schools can't get these funds, but it still manifests itself the same way. So it's almost like this, in a way that you, an, another term they use, this invisible Jim Crow. You don't necessarily see it because the law is not explicitly stated, but it's still there. And so therefore, the segregation still maintains itself. Or I guess we could say the disparity still maintains itself. And IQ testing and other kinds of standardized mm. tests, those are also mm. part of the invisible line. Yes. So with the IQ test, they become part of that invisible line because I use that test to manifest or I guess to maintain the economic differences and the educational differences. So you find that Black children being disproportionately tested as well as Black children being disproportionately put in special education classes. And what I think was one of the best things about Amos Wilson is that he noticed that the IQ tests were used as a justification to continue to put Black children in an inferior educational position, even though Brown is done. So Brown versus Board, all these children go to school together, supposed to bring up this equality, but he says it still maintains that through the IQ testing. So one of the things Black psychologists did with Asa Hilliard being at the forefront of that is that they begin to question this IQ testing. And part of what they did, they did several things. One, they came up with what they called the Association of Black Psychologists Bill of Rights. And what the Bill of Rights did is that that's something they came up with that you can hand out to Black parents to let them know what their rights were in the IQ testing process. So things like you have the right to refuse testing, or you can choose who you want your psychologist to be to test you. And what that does is that it demystifies this whole process. Because the school is calling you saying, we want to test your child. And they're saying that a lot of these parents don't understand the context of what's going on. Another thing they did within the IQ testing piece is that this very important case, Larry P., what they call the Larry P. case in California. And what the Larry P. case did is that it said that you can no longer use IQ score as the sole determinant in placing children in special education. Because part of that was, was noticing how there was a bias within the IQ testing, a bias in some of the questions that were framing these tests. So the Larry P. case was an important case as far as them looking at the IQ testing. Another thing that they did uh, that Asa Hilliard was a part of was they called for a moratorium on testing. And in that, they were saying that, well, let's stop this IQ testing, specifically with Black children, until we can figure out what some of these biases are. So all that was part of this whole effort to look at the IQ testing. And the last part on that, as part of the, the brilliance of Asa Hilliard and some of these Black psychologists, is that they recognize that on a larger level, this was part of a, what they call the testing game. And within this testing game, you have the producers of the test, then you have the advocates of the test, and then there are the dealers and the pawns. So the producers 
those are the people who make the test. You know, ETS and all these different places, they get together and come up with the questions. The advocates are the schools and the universities who advocate for these tests. Then there are the dealers. Those are the school psychologists, the counselors, all these people who actually give the test. And the pawns are the children who have to navigate this whole space. So there are many institutions that are engaged in making black kids inferior, and white supremacy as a whole benefits from this whole process. Yes. So that's where it comes in when Asa Hillier talked about these different uh, euphemisms. So the way we phrase that, what role does white supremacy play in maintaining this process? And Asa Hillier said that you need to ask that particular question, but instead we use these euphemisms. Right. And euphemisms are words that lessen the psychological and social tension that occur when addressing issues and it makes people feel more comfortable. So euphemistic labeling limits the discussion to surface structure issues. So what happens is you have them talking about race relations or intergroup relations, multiculturalism, diversity. And what Asa Hillier says is that those terms, they don't let us understand or let us see how white supremacy is what maintains this lack of education among black children. So he says, once you focus on white supremacy and change those euphemism, then you get the questions like, who are the powerful and privileged? What role does education play in their obtaining and maintaining their power over their oppressed? And then even if you word it like that, what is white supremacy? How does white supremacy benefit from African children's miseducation? And then what type of cultural education is needed to counter white supremacy? So all of that type of framing, once you recognize that that's the role that white supremacy plays in education, when you ask those questions from that type of language, then you look at it from another perspective. So it seems that an important part of Dr. Hilliard's work is deploying an interdisciplinary approach to African-centered education, not just looking into the past, but applying the various disciplines in making the analysis in the present. Yes. And I think that's what happens, too, is that once you break out of these disciplinary boxes, right, once you once you break out of this particular area, then you start talking about a holistic education, and then you can look at it from a different perspective. So yeah, he changed this whole concept of just staying in the box and African-centered education being a holistic approach that, like you said, looks at psychology, looks at sociology, looks at spirituality, religion, economics. And also, I think they're going back to the past, just like Cabral, when he talks about returning to the source, was similar to Cabral. Asa Hill's returning to the source was one return to the source in that he thought that there was a form of mental enslavement. So he said there needed to be a psychological liberation. And what would happen there is that once you free your mind and return to the source, then you go to what sources? You go to original sources in whatever area that you're talking about. And he argues that a lot of those original sources are sources that apply to or are made by people from Africa or throughout the African diaspora. Yes, you mentioned Cabral. Dr. Hilliard applied Cabral's thinking, and of course Cabral was an African revolutionary, applied his thinking to Black American education. Yes. And so the Cabral piece is interesting because a lot of times I think we might sometimes we misappropriate Cabral, and I don't want to do that in this situation because when he talked about returning to the store, he meant that for particularly those middle-class intellectuals who had been away to, you know, go to the Europe, go to the so-called metropole, and then they came back and they had lost this connection with 
their culture. So the only people who really had to return to the source for him were a lot of times these middle-class intellectuals and professionals who went away. But the connection I see there is that this still I, this focus on the importance of culture. So Cabral's understanding of culture resistance and this idea that they both are arguing that the ability to maintain the unique cultural forms while based on the past, but it grows out of a people's present struggles to advance their group. So taking that concept from the African context and tying it into this African-American context. And within that, part of what Asa Hilliard also talked about was that he had this piece where he said, sometimes we're chasing gods that are not of our own. So chasing gods that are on our own. And in that, he was talking about these, our intellectual ancestors, like where do we draw inspiration from? And he said, instead of drawing inspiration from this deep reservoir and this deep well of African intellectual history, a lot of times people feel like they have to draw from this European history, or at least sometimes like they have to justify, <laughs> justify this African theorist or this African or African diaspora thinker with this European thinker. So yes, this idea of returning to the source and drawing from our past, but making it applicable to our contemporary reality. So how useful or relevant is African-centered education in an integrated educational setting? Mm, well, that is, students who come from African and non-African backgrounds. Ah, I think it's useful within that context, too. I think specifically that he was referring to how do you deal with children of African descent, but within the context of a space where there are other people, other uh, culture groups as well, it works just as well also. So what I mean by that is when I'm teaching class, the uh, intro class, I talk to them about having a seat at the table of humanity. And I use an example of, of a potluck and how when people come to a potluck, everybody brings their dish, right? So people are bringing collard greens, some people are bringing macaroni, people are bringing all types of different food, right? And so me and my wife used to come to the potluck and we would bring water every time. We bring water and juice. And they were nice people, but after a while, they could make an argument that if you want to come to our potluck in this commune where everybody brings their contribution, you need to bring more than just your water and juice. And so to use that crude analogy, think about that setting as everybody coming to sit down at the table of humanity. And what happens there is that that means that African people are bringing their contribution. They're bringing their contribution to have a seat at humanity. But without those people knowing their cultural contribution to humanity, people might not even want them to sit at the table because they don't have a contribution to bring. Professor Doris Jameson, speaking from Birmingham, Alabama. Arsenic, it's a lot more than just a favorite weapon of sneaky murderers. Arsenic occupies a special place in the history of killer chemical agents, which is Northwestern University PhD candidate Jason Porter's field of study. As Porter explains, arsenic has played a huge role in agriculture, manufacturing, and war, ending the lives of untold numbers of insects, plants, and human beings in the process. An important byproduct of the gold mining, silver mining, the smelting of lead and copper was arsenic. And in the late 19th century, after the abolition of enslaved people, and also there was a wave of massive pest infestations, mostly locusts, moths, potato beetles. There was a kind of a multidimensional, multifactorial confluence of cultural, social, economic, and political 
drives around kind of using arsenic-based chemicals to destroy pests that were adversely affecting economic gains, primarily in cotton. In the U.S. South, you see a gigantic increase of the manufacturing of both first fertilizers, but then arsenical products. Baltimore becomes the kind of the hub of the production of arsenical insecticides around the country for both fruits and cotton. But mainly, it first starts from Mexican arsenic that is a mining byproduct, but also connects to agriculture and also industry and gold mining across the world. Other sources from which United States chemical companies, engineering companies, and mining firms got their arsenic. So domestically, this use of arsenic in agriculture, and especially in cotton, must have had tremendous deleterious effects on black agricultural workers, the main agricultural workers in the southern part of the United States. Absolutely, absolutely. There's an incredible scholars doing great work on this. I just recently had a conversation with a geographer, Brian Williams, in Mississippi State, and he shared with me USDA, so government document videos from the 1920s, where you have black people basically smothered in arsenic as demonstrating to farmers how to use this. You see the black people washing arsenic off their faces, jumping into the river afterwards, and they even show kind of the misuse of arsenic can lead to death of black worker. But yeah, every single time I've published something on arsenic or pesticides, my grandmother has read it and reached out to me, and she's talked about how it reminds her of growing up on a truck farm in Maryland, not too far from Baltimore. And she remembers seeing pesticides coming in from the sky at some point. She remembers, she said that it was a very gendered time and there was only so much that her and my aunt truly could do. But even my grandmother has chimed in and taught me quite a bit about the black experience and its, and its relation to exposure um, across the 20th century. You're absolutely right. There are other scholars in the Baltimore area. I was just recently talking to a Nicole Fabricant who has a long history of experience with the black activists in South Baltimore and Curtis Bay who have won international environmentalist awards for their activism against the environmental racism that has taken place in Southern Baltimore in Curtis Bay. And you have had for a century dozens of chemical companies from Allied Chemical, which is now Honeywell, to Chevron and Conoco. I was just looking this morning to make sure I had my ducks in a row, a map of Curtis Bay. And now it's an ecological industrial park comprised of dozens of now green energy companies that still are disposing disproportionate amounts of waste into that region, which is predominantly black and Latinx. And I can get into how this adversely affects people in Mexico as well, but yes, in, in the United States, this history of arsenic, the history of pesticides, especially in the eastern seaboard of the United States, has affected black people at higher rates in terms of asthma, cancer rates. And the same thing applies if you want to go to the west in California, where you see the same thing affecting Filipino, Mexican, Central American, also black farmers. I mean, the exposure rates of black and brown people in this country, the putting food on the table has always hit our homes and our agricultural workers 
harder than others. Yes, most of the so-called brownfields, that is, those pieces of land that are terminally infected by dangerous chemicals, most of them are in black and brown communities. Absolutely. And so here we have this poisonous compound, arsenic, which all of us are afraid of the very word today, but there was a time <laughs> when it was considered a miracle of science. Right. Yeah, arsenic's history goes back millennia, right? I mean, there are very few ancient cultures from China to Egypt to, you know, Asia Minor and Greek that didn't have some commentary on what this odd metalloid substance did when burned at different rates. So once you get into the 19th century, you do have people isolating derivatives or isolating practices from arsenic that are used for an assortment of different things, from making glass for glasses or actually as a topical ointment for syphilis and other diseases. So yeah, it became in many ways a panacea, which people just kind of assumed because of its odd alchemical seeming properties that it could address a, the slurry of different conditions. And I mean, so people used it to make paint, people used it for cosmetics. Across the 19th century, there was no consensus. People realized that it had an acute toxicity, right? That if you took it at a certain dose, that it would kill you, regardless of who you were or what you were using it. But there was no consensus between the medical community or the entomological community or the chemical community or industrial community. What was the chronic problem? And I think that is the gap. That was the medical kind of expertise gap that allowed people of color to be put in this harm's way because doctors never agreed and industrial workers never agreed and could never isolate that it was a carcinogen until late until the post-war period. But even still, it's not banned completely until 1988, and it still exists today in its organic forms. So, so I think that it's kind of its latitude and use, its practical latitude has lent itself to become, you know, recurrent and ubiquitous in society, but also, like you've alluded to, this shadowy figure that we know is bad, right? But uh, since we don't know how bad it is or when it's bad and, you know, what amounts it's bad is, well, you know, for certain people in certain places, we'll let them find out on their own time, right? So, yeah, I definitely think that its properties have lent itself to be used and abused in quite a, a myriad of ways. Yes, to the vast profit of U.S. businesses, which made arsenic a major export item, especially in Latin America. Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought us back to that because, yes, so one of the major companies, American smelting and refining company, Asarco, based in Tucson, where I lived for, for six years they were the world's major producers of arsenic until 1985, and they were shipping during the 1920s and 1930s during Latin America's export boom when, you know, different regions in Latin America became associated with coffee or bananas or chocolate or vanilla. People in the United States, especially luxury consumers, didn't necessarily know anything cultural or distinct about Colombia or Honduras, but they might be able to say, oh, I've heard of, you know, that banana or, oh, I want this particular orange, right? So during the export boom of Latin America, companies like Asarco were sending 
millions of pounds of white arsenic, calcium arsenate, lead arsenate to these countries in Latin America to help grow these crops, which pest control was increasingly important because monoculture attracted pests at higher rates, which is a problem that we've seen across the 20th century and we still deal with today in the 21st century, and why pesticides to some extent still exist. And why I think arsenic is really important is not necessarily because of its impact in terms of quantity, because there are other pesticides that have been used in greater quantity. But I believe that arsenic established this pattern, right? A pattern of the U.S. empire that both affects abroad and at home, as we've seen kind of in Baltimore and talked about in the U.S. South and talked about in in rural uh, Maryland. But you also see that in rural and urban Latin America, too, as these companies expand. Going after the first generation of arsenical pesticides, it's DDT and organochlorinates. After that, it's other types of organophosphates. So I believe that many of these kind of the, the patterned way or political economy through which pesticides proliferate through the Americas, I believe, start in many ways with arsenic. Yes, the so-called Green Revolution, which was heralded as promising to save the world from starvation, was largely driven by these pesticides, arsenic included. Absolutely. So arsenic isn't oftentimes included in the, the family of technologies that drove the Green Revolution. But if you look at especially the expansion of cotton, which companies that I look at like Anderson Clayton and Houston became the world's largest cotton firm because of their holdings throughout Mexico and Brazil and other parts of Latin America, I believe Honduras. Arsenic is oftentimes not included, but chemicals like DDT weren't the flagship Green Revolution chemical, really didn't work that effectively against cotton pests. And on the ground, many farmers had to mix arsenic with DDT, so it was always present. Also, DDT was used, at least in the Mexican context, mostly against mosquitoes in a public health context, where as most of the manuals that you see both in newspapers or produced by the government or produced by entomologists and botanists are still suggesting to use arsenic, which is one of the ways that I connect the Afro-Indigenous experience and and mestizo experience in different parts of Mexico growing cotton and coconuts to the similar experiences of Afro-Indigenous people throughout Latin America too, the relationship with both growing these oil seeds like cotton and and coconut, but then also using the, the arsenics that are suggested. So throughout the Green Revolution, many people talk about the you know the importance of tractors and hybrid seeds and DDT, but arsenic, I believe, established the kind of the political patterns, the economic patterns, some of those transnational connections, and was also a very important pesticide used and made in Mexico throughout those 1950s and 60s periods of the Green Revolution. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.